Hey, this is Matthew's Table podcast channel. We wanted to thank you for joining us today. Hope this inspires you, builds your faith, and reminds you of who you are, but more importantly, whose you are. Churches, and I just want to uh, pray, and then we can get started. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for our worship team who uh, does such a great job. I pray that if there's any distractions this morning that we can just intentionally focus in on you, that we can be a church that is about you, that loves you, that seeks you. And I just pray that if anyone doesn't know you today, that they would come to know you in a real way. I thank you that you're a God who gives freedom and hope and restoration. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so February the 13th in 1996, on one of the biggest selling albums of all time, Tupac released the song that every teenager my age has yelled out, every inmate has dreamed about, and every 16 and, and the 16-year-old me decided to get tattooed on my arm really nice and really big. It says, only God can judge me. And people would say, Nick, you're a fool. My response would be, only God can judge me. They would say, Nick, you're a terrible husband. I would say, who are you? Only God can judge me. They would say, Nick, you're out here committing felonies. And I would say, man, who are you? Only God can judge me. If we had a prize for worst tattoos at Matthew's table, I would come in a close second after Roger's bona fide hustler tattoo on his back. <laughs> Kids, if you hear anything today from my life experience, never let a guy that's learning how to tattoo learn on you. <laughs> never get a mafia man on your arm from a guy in jail and never pay a few packs of Raymond noodles for a tattoo because I can promise you it never turns out right. When I was 16 years old, I went to a tattoo shop with my dad and I was looking through the artwork and that's what I had landed on. The famous words that every teenager has said, only God can judge me. I thought that was my staple. I thought I was so misunderstood. I thought I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. And I just knew that you had your own dirt. So who were you to judge me? Maybe you've been there too. Maybe you thought, who are they to judge me? Who gave them any right? Who died and made them king? If you have thought that, Hopefully we'll see in our text this morning that if you are a member, if you had committed to Matthew's table, if we don't call you out when you're sinning, if we don't run to you when you fall, if we don't bear each other's burdens, then I don't know how we as a church can say we love each other. Amen. Only God can judge me, not if you're a part of the local church. Only God can judge me, not if you have real people in your life. Remember this before we read Galatians 
chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. The enemy knows that isolation leads to devastation. And as a church, we should practice restoration instead of condemnation. Galatians 6. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Galatians 6, chapter 1. I mean, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught up in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. That's the word of God. If you knew me about 10 years ago, my life was completely different. I had jobs and different plans on how I planned to make it big time, and I had all these goals on how I was going to make it rich. My wife would tell you she was tired of the roller coaster ride. She would tell you she's tired of my different ideas. We, at one time, I had a detail shop where we washed cars. At one time, we had a baby store. At one time, we had a mowing business. And my brother, who's on media, who always got me in trouble with my wife, he had the bright idea that we should open up a taxi company. I passed. But if you did know me before ministry, I had a shop called Knickknacks and Rob's U-Hauls. For years and years, we sold kitchen tables and dressers and beds and microwaves, any, really anything that we could get our hands on. We would go yard selling and try to find the cheap deals that we could find. People would bring us their old stuff. And honestly, we wasn't beneath picking up a thing or two that was on the side of the road. We lived by the famous quote that one man's trash is another man's treasure. We knew that nothing was beyond repair and that although something was sitting on the side of the road, it didn't mean it couldn't be restored. Long before Pinterest, Rob had me painting vanities, old kitchen tables and church pews because in his mind, nothing was beyond restoration. It didn't matter how old it was, and if the customer came in and said, hey, y'all, why is this chair wobbly? Rob would say, you got to be gentle because it's gently used. <laughs> See, true restoration, this is the definition, is the action of returning something to a former owner, a place, or condition. An eye doctor may say this, I've restored his vision. A contractor may say, we're restoring this home. In our text today, Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, for those caught in any transgression or fallen, that restoration should be the destination. Verse 1 and verse 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. 
bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the first question I wanted to ask us as a church. Are we bearing one another's burdens? 59 times in the New Testament alone, you will find the statement, one another. Whether that's love one another, be devoted to one another, live in harmony with one another, or bear one another's burdens, the theme is we're never meant to be in isolation, to do life alone, but rather to do life together because we need people around us, the one another's, to pick us up when we fall, to extend a hand out, to show up when we need them, and to point us back to Jesus. Francis Chan, he's one of my favorite pastors, and he'll put it like this. Bearing one another's burdens is never easy, but it's also not optional. Bearing one another's burdens is never easy, but it's also not optional. What you'll see in any type of restoration And why I think a lot of people want to live by the only God can judge me model is restoration takes work. Loving one another takes work. Bearing one another's burdens takes work. Think about what you have to do to restore a house. You have to tear down walls. You have to work on floors. And quite honestly, it's a lot of work. A lot of people don't want to do it. To restore a broken relationship, you usually have to go to counseling, and it's a lot of work. To restore a broken bone, it usually requires a cast or surgery from the doctor, and that always doesn't feel good. But tell me this, how unloving would it be for you to break your leg, and you go to the doctor, and you expect him to restore it, And he tells you that he's busy. How unloving would it be for that same doctor to tell you he can't fix your broken leg because you should have known better? How unloving would it be for that doctor to look at your broken leg and to call all his other doctors and nurses and they just start gossiping about it? You should be furious Because you went to the doctor thinking it's this guy's job to restore it. And in the same type of way, people in the church have got hurt because they receive condemnation instead of restoration. We've had people in the church that have been said, I love you. And they received a nose up instead of a hand down. They had people that started gossiping instead of praying. They had people that claimed they cared about them. But when it came down to it, when it wasn't benefiting them, they got thrown away like a piece of trash. Notice that verse 1 doesn't say, brothers, if everybody else is caught in transgressions. Notice it doesn't say, brothers, those other people who are caught in transgressions. However, it does say, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do you know what anyone means? It means anyone, including you and including me. 
You are not superhero Christian. You are not the Michael Jordan of Christians. You are not the Michael Phelps of Christians. You, me, Mother Teresa, and the guy that just got saved in prison are all in need of the same grace and restoration. We will each in here go through a season where we need a hand, and we will go through seasons where we can extend a hand. Community isn't just when we're singing kumbaya. Community is there when we are losing it all. Real love says this. I love you enough to bear this burden with you. To say, man, I see you struggling. Hold on. To say to man, cling to Christ. That's why it says in verse 1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Real love is humble. Real love isn't arrogant, it's gentle. Because I know I'm not above doing the same thing. I know I'm not above falling short myself. The only place that we should point a finger when someone falls short is to Christ. Who am I to point a finger down when I know it was him that restored me? Think about this. Do you remember Jesus' disciple Peter? In Luke 22, verse 33, let's look what Peter said and how confident he was in himself. Luke 22, 33. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter told Jesus, look, I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go to prison for you. If everyone else turns their back, Jesus, it'll be me that'll be right there. But look at Jesus' response to Peter in the very next verse. Luke 22, 34. Jesus says, I'll tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Guess what happens to confident Peter? Before the rooster crows, the same guy that said, Lord, I'm ready to die for you, to go to prison for you, denies Jesus three times. The question that I want to ask you, though, is did Jesus punt Peter out of the kingdom? Absolutely not. Did Jesus tell Peter he has to earn his way back in? No. Matter of fact, in the very next chapter in Luke 23, Peter would see Jesus die on the cross in suffering and humility to restore his people back to himself. The goal is always restoration, especially since I know that I may need a shoulder to lean on one day. From the beginning of time, men and women have been dropping the ball and God has been calling people back to himself. Have you read your Bible? It's not, a it's not a book where a bunch of people have it together. It's where a bunch of people fall short and find a Savior who doesn't. I want you to remember this slogan today. I want you to maybe write it down or embrace it. And I think it's in your bulletin. Biblical correction 
is for your protection. Loving correction is for your protection. Can I ask you this? How unloving as a parent would I be to never correct my daughter when she's wrong? Like, how loving would I be if I was to see her doing wrong and just say, oh, that's not a big deal. She can just learn the hard way. I don't just discipline my daughter Bella because I'm mad at her, because I'm disappointed in her. I discipline in her. I correct her because I love her. That's how we should view bearing one another's burdens in church discipline, that the correction is always for our protection. It's love for those around us to say, I see you slipping. It's love for those around you to say, I see you heading in the wrong direction. I see you drifting. I see you allowing sin to enter your life. True accountability should be embraced because I know and you should know that any of us are capable of falling short. Here's how I knew that I had a real friend in my life. He told me the truth when I didn't want to hear it one bit. I had a friend, and his name is Julius. He's a member of our church now. And he said, Nick, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to lose your family. He warned me that my actions would have consequences and that I was going to find myself divorced. And he was right. He was trying to correct me to protect me. And he loved me enough, despite the fact that I didn't listen, that he extended a hand instead of his back. Julius never once told me, I told you so. He called a Christian counselor. He never told me, man, you should have listened. He walked with me and he prayed for me and he bore that burden with me. Here's what I want you to know. If you don't want the church in your business, it's probably because you don't have any business doing it in the first place. If we have a problem with someone going through our phone, it's probably because we have something in our phone that we're hiding. If we don't like people to ask us about the sin in our life, it's probably because we've loved the sin in our life. Correction is for our protection. It's like when the police get behind you. If you've ever felt that feeling, if I see you start to have an anxiety attack and breathing hard and looking out of every mirror, I'm probably going to think, man, you got some warrants or you're hiding something. And I need to ask you what's going on before the police ask you. We as a church should embrace that accountability and not from a stance of pride or arrogance, but because we know we're capable of falling ourselves. We need men around us that say, man, it's time to be a man, to lead our families. And like Pastor Jeremy said at Man Up, to be man of the word, to love the neglected and to kill our sin. We need women to rise up and embrace being a biblical woman. We need as a church to be men that are serious about the Bible. We need as a church to be, have women that are serious about the Bible. And I should never have to say this, but we at Matthew's Table should be serious about the Bible. We can get real with each other and confess sin 
If the goal is always restoration, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, that's hard, but it's also not optional if we call each other family. Imagine it this way. You find yourself alone with a big brick on your back. You have a big rock on your back and it's too it's starting to be too much and it's hard to carry and the weight is starting to get you down. The pressure of it is starting to get to you and before you know it, isolation has left you slumped over with a bigger load than you could carry. But then imagine this. Imagine that if one of your brothers and sisters came by and said, let me help you lift this load. And then imagine what if others joined in and said, man, let me help you lift this load and carry this with you. And then imagine if the whole church got around you and said, let me bear this burden with you. That's what the local body is meant to look like. When we do that as a church, we are imitating what Christ has done for us. He took our sin and placed it on his back. That is restoration. He bore the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. That is restoration. If you're walking around with shame and guilt on you, why? Because he bore that burden so you wouldn't have to. In case you didn't know this, Jesus Christ is the ultimate burden barrier. He's the ultimate restorer. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that for a second. Jesus Christ paid the price. Jesus Christ bore our burdens. Jesus Christ put the weight upon his shoulders. Why do we walk around beat up if he set us free? Why do we walk around condemning others when he's not condemning us? Why do we walk around beat up when we know he won? If anyone has the right to have his nose up, it's him. He deserves all the glory. What pride do we have? What are we boasting in? If you are in Christ, know this, that he did it. If you are restored, know this, that he did it. And the coolest thing I find is that he planned it since the beginning of time. It's not a coincidence that you find yourself here, rather evidence that he's doing something in your life. Verse 3, if anyone, that's that anyone word again, thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. John Piper puts it this way, all heroes are shadows of Christ. All heroes, line them up, are shadows of Christ. Do not deceive in yourself to thinking that you are superhero Christian, that you cannot fall, and that you are all that in a bag of chips. I know I'm not. I know I'm capable of falling. 
I know I need men around me that hold me accountable, that hold me to a standard, that point me to truth. I'm the youngest of 13 brothers and sisters. I'm the youngest of six brothers that have all been to jail. And my life has been radically changed by Christ. But one day I was riding around with one of my brothers after he had gone to see his probation officer. He said, Nick, me and, my conversa- me and my PO got in a conversation about you. And I was like, well, that's never good. What was y'all talking about? And he said, hey, bro, well, I told her you're the best man that I've ever met. You're the greatest guy that I know. And me being curious, I, w- I said, hey, bro, what's your standard of good? Because I'm the same guy that was robbing people. I'm the same God that had an affair on his wife. I'm the same God that has dropped the ball, so how am I good? Compared to that standard, there's a lot of better men than me. And I think that's one of the problems is when we compare ourselves to people that are worse than us, then we look good and we put ourselves on a pedestal. But when we compare ourselves to Christ, he's on the pedestal and we should be humbled. There's 7.8 billion people in the world, then there's Christ. 7.8 billion people that have different stories. But I don't care who they are and what language they speak, they are all in need of Jesus. There is only one king on top of this mountain. It is That king that restores, it's him that makes new. It's him that calls. It's him that saves. It's him that gives freedom. It's him that leads. And we have no other hope. Our boast, Matthew's table, is in Christ, in Christ alone. If we have a hundred eggs, they all should go in his basket. What do you have to boast in this morning? Is it your manhood? Is it your pride? Is it the money in your bank account? That's fool's gold. You know what? I don't care to wipe a toilet in the kingdom. I don't care to clean bathrooms in the kingdom. And depending upon how your feet smell, I really don't care to wash feet in the kingdom. That's because Christ saved me at my lowest point. Christ saved me at my worst. When I didn't have any hope and my life was filthy and a mess, Christ reached down his hand and said, Nick Martin, you're mine. Christ gave me hope when I was completely and utterly hopeless. Christ gave me freedom when I was a slave to my own desires. And I come before you today with nothing to brag about other than him. Bearing one another's burdens and offering restoration instead of condemnation is nothing in comparison to what Christ offers us. Verse 4 and 5. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. A big mistake I think we can make in church is we play the comparison game. We want everyone else's gifts, and we want what they have. 
We can always find ourselves looking like, I wish I could sing like that. I wish I could preach like that. I wish I could pray like that. But that's a dangerous path because you never stop comparing yourself to others. Whatever God has called you to in relationship with the local church, do that to glorify him. YouTube is not your local church. God designed us to be in a real community to bear each other's burdens. You cannot do the one another's on a video screen. Technology is a great gift from God, but technology is not your church. The one another's means we should greet people in a way that puts the spotlight on Jesus. We should love each other in a way that puts the spotlight upon Jesus. We should serve in kids' table in a way that puts the spotlight on Jesus. In the kingdom, it's not, I need to work my way up the ranks, but rather humbly serve each other in a way that puts the spotlight upon God. One of my favorite things to think about, and you may not even know this if you're new here, that someone is usually always in the prayer room praying for this service. The prayer room's right over there, and someone's usually always praying for Jesus to have the spotlight and for you to know him. That's humble. That's gentle. That's putting the spotlight upon him. We don't need recognition when we realize it's his church. It's his money. It's his mercy. It's his forgiveness. It's his grace that allows us to do anything in the first place. Restoration is the destination and biblical correction is for your protection. I'm a pastor today, but humbly, I'm not above being a toilet wiper. I really don't care to be a greeter. I could be a trash picker up or I could serve in kids table. I'll be here at the churchwide clean day because I know I'm a sinner just saved by grace. Man, I'm glad God can use a guy like me. I'm humble God even called me in the first place. You know, I was surprised the first time everybody that the first time someone asked me to give my testimony, I was like, "Who me? I'm broken." What do I got to say that anyone needs to hear? What can I do in the kingdom? And God poured his, he breathed life into my lungs and poured his grace out in my life. And he's the only reason why I can preach today. You don't have to be on stage and have a title to do ministry. One of my favorite quotes of all time is, if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. If serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. I know this, that I can't sing. I can't even clap on beat. I'm not the best preacher, but I know that if God can use me, then he can use you. If God can save me at my lowest, he can save you at your lowest. If God can restore my family, then God can restore your family. I have people ask me all the time, Nick, do you think God can restore my marriage? And I'm like, man, I don't know how mine was restored, but he did it. 
Christ did it so I know if he can restore mine, a broken marriage with no hope, my wife didn't want me no more, and Christ changed her and changed me, and we're happily married today, then I know Christ can do the same for you. I know Christ can save you because he saved me. That's a part of my testimony. I was broken, convicted felon, couldn't get a good job. Christ gave me a job at Friends of Sinners and uses me in ministry. And I'm, I'm even humbled that I can do anything. I'm even humbled that I have a key to the church building. The same God that was once a manipulator is trusted. Like Christ did that. I didn't work my way into that, you know, ranking. Well, I guess we can trust Nick today. Christ did that and breathed life into me. The enemy would love for you to think this. I'm too far gone. The enemy would love for you to think there's no hope for me. The enemy would love for you to think that you're beyond saving. Look what Christ says in Matthew 11, 28 and verse 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see that this morning? Our Savior is gentle. He offers rest. He offers restoration. He, he, he bears the burdens for us. He says his burdens are light because he is the ultimate burden barrier. We put so much, un, we put so much pressure on ourselves to perform a certain way and feel like we always have to put on the fake smiles and the Sunday hellos. If we were to be honest, we always feel like that, like, you know, I've, been, I've argued with my wife before church before, and I knew as soon as we got that door to the door, it'd be like, hey, hello, how are you? And I'd be like, man, if you, you know, like, we was just arguing in the car, and as soon, we know how to put that smile on in church. We know how to put the mask on. We know how to fake it until we make it. And we can think if the church isn't hitting new numbers and and we don't have the latest gadgets and the most talented singers and gifted speakers, then we're doing something wrong. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do our best, but here's what I'll tell you. Give me a hundred people that pray over a thousand pew warmers any day of the week. Give us a hundred people that have a heart for the lost people any day of the week. Give me a hundred worshipers that don't care if they can sing or not. Give me a hundred people that love Jesus and have experienced his restorations, and we will flip this city upside down. How about this? Instead of 10 more programs, we do 10 more prayer nights, and the criteria for a worship team isn't if you can hit a high note, the criteria for a worship team is, do you know a risen Savior? If you can sing, that's a plus. But give me anointing over talent any day of the week. There is a big difference between a gifted speaker and a faithful pastor 
and I'm still wondering, have we figured that out? I don't need a pastor that jumps in on a video screen. I need a pastor that prays for my family, that bears my burdens with me. I don't need a pastor that's traveling the world. I want a pastor that shows up at my house when I'm hurting. And I think Roger and Stephen are two of the best. And I've seen at Matthew's table when one of ours has fallen short, I've seen how the church will show up at their house. I've seen how the church will check in on them and almost awkwardly be like, hey, man, I missed you at church. But that's love. That's bearing each other's burdens. That's because we know how easy it is for us to drift ourselves. God has called us, Matthew's table, to be a family of restoration in a local body. When one of us are hurting at the table, all of us should be hurting at the table. When one of us are down, it's like we have a broken arm that needs restoration. You know what that broken arm doesn't need? Lecture and gossip. You know what that broken arm doesn't need? For you to say, I told you so. That broken arm doesn't need a bunch of weird looks. It needs people that will show up. It needs people that will pray. It needs people that will remind them of truth. It needs people that will point them back to Jesus. Small churches are designed for that specific reason, to bear one another's burdens with each other. And if you're not in a small church, I'm going to ask you, what are you waiting on? That's where we do life together, and there's one almost every day of the week. Let's look at the example set for us and how we as a church should pursue restoration in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. How do we pursue restoration, Nick? This is how. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice it doesn't say, call Susie and Karen first. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Go and tell him, hey, man, you sinned against me. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That is biblical restoration. But if that doesn't work, if he chooses not to listen, Then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if that doesn't work after you pursued restoration one-on-one, and after you took one or two others with you, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do you see how we pursue restoration and bear the burdens of each other? Again, we do life together. We form real relationships. We extend a hand. We show up. We're gentle. We pray. We love one another. If that doesn't work, then we take another step. If that doesn't work, then we take another step and we go further and further and further. Let it be said that the person that walks away from the church, that the church did everything in its power to walk back towards them. I want people to say about Matthew's table, they showed up 
when I was about to get a divorce. I want them to say they showed up when I went and got high. I want people to say those crazy people love me when I didn't even love myself. We can as a church have restoring love because that's what Jesus offers us. Worship team, you can make your way up. If Matthew's table is a family, then that means we are brothers and sisters and not just associates. I get it. Because I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I'm the youngest of 13, and at times, my house was crazy. My dad would allow my brothers to fight. They would argue. We had to share the same bed. But one thing my dad would always remind us of, when it went too far, he would say, that's your brother. At the end of the day, man, he would say, that right there is your brother. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're talking about. That will always be your brother. You do not give up on him. You do not stop loving him. You do not kick him out. And I think that's what we can do in the church sometimes. We can think, I'm done with them. It's their fault. I'm kicking them out. I've gave them one too many chances. But here's what I think, though, church. We should pursue restoration at all costs because Jesus pursued it at all costs for us. We can lay our lives down for each other because he laid his life down for us. It's not about our pride and our ego and our feelings when we are bearing one another's burdens. It's about Christ and his kingdom. And when the church bickers back and forth, then we look just like the world. When the church gossips, gossips about one another, we look just like the world. When the church throws people away, we look just like the world. Do you know what restoration means? It means we have been made new. We don't dangle someone's past over their head because Christ doesn't dangle our past over ours. I think about what he's done for Matthew's table, and I'm completely humbled. We have ex-drug addicts. We have doctors, felons, businessmen, ex-drug dealers, whites, blacks, old, young, rich, poor, all in need of the same grace, all in need of the same restoration. Are we a dysfunctional family at times? Yes. But in this, this is a place where broken people can worship a risen Savior and not worry about, do I fit in or not? Have you been broken? Then you fit in. Do you need Jesus? Then you fit in. Do you need restoration? Then you fit in. If you don't know him today, then I ask you, what are you waiting on? That man or woman that you've been putting your hope in will not fix you. The money in your bank account will not fix you. Anything you're putting your hopes and your dreams and looking for filming in, that's not going to fix you. There's one man that offers you true restoration, 
true forgiveness, true hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. I'm telling you today, I'm asking you today, pray to him. Turn from your sins. Turn to a restoring Savior. Ask him for forgiveness, and let's offer that same forgiveness from from people that have done wrong to us. Who am I to withhold forgiveness to someone when Christ had offered me forgiveness at my lowest? Here's some good news. Christ just doesn't put makeup on you. Christ just doesn't put on the Sunday smile. He doesn't just change the outside of you. Christ makes broken people new. He turns trash into treasure. He turns dead into life, and he restores the unrestorable. The greatest news of all this morning is Christ didn't die for perfect people. We can worship today on this last song knowing our King, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ is in the restoration business. Let's worship.